Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Inside Writing Podcast presented by Gotham Writers. I'm your host, Josh Sippy. As a reminder, all of these episodes are recorded live Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Zoom. You can join us there, bring your questions, uh, sign up for free on the Gotham Writers website, and enjoy the show. Today, we're talking with an award-winning playwriter, TV writer, and screenwriter. Madri Shaker is an alum of the Juilliard Playwriting Program, a fellow at New Dramatists, and the 2020 winner of the Lanford Wilson Playwriting Award. Her audio play, Evil Eye, debuted on the Audible bestseller list in May 2019 and won the 2020 Audi Award for Best Original Work. She has also written on the HBO show, The Nevers, among much more. Let's welcome Madri to the show. Hello, Madri. Hello. Hi there. Thank you for being here today. So, Madri, you, you've written across numerous mediums, uh, some classic mediums like screen and television, some, some you know, unique ones like audio plays. But where did it all begin for you? What was that creative spark that sort of kicked off your writing journey? That's a great question. And I've never thought of it that way, mostly because I've always, the story I've always told myself was, well, I've always been a writer. I've been writing uh, for as long back as I can remember. Um, I can tell you, like, in particularly when it comes to theater, I have a very vivid memory of the thing that made me be like, oh, I want to do this. And that is my uh, my dad loved putting on plays with his friends in the Bay Area. And he would put on Tamil plays, which is the language that we speak at home. And I was four or five and I would see all of my dad's friends coming home and rehearsing in the living room. And it just looked like so much fun. And I think that's what made me at a very young age, feel like theater. Theater is the thing. <laughs> I want to do this thing. Um, and I'd been writing uh, uh, the the stuff I used to write when I was very little was poetry. I loved rhyming poetry. I think because you know we're all brought up with nursery rhymes and songs and things like that. And so uh, it started from there, just like rhyming verse that I really liked. And then I got into Harry Potter fan fiction when I was a teenager, and that's when I first learned how to do narrative fiction. Uh, and uh, got to do it in a very safe space online with a lot of beta readers and fandom friends who are now like still, I'm still friends with the people who would, we would write, read and write fan fiction together. Um, and the whole way through my parents were just really supportive and encouraging. So that, that all helped so much. So yeah, there were different places that uh, the, the spark came, I guess. And when was it when you really realized that this was going to be your profession? Because I mean, for so many writers out there, they go through a very similar process, but very few of them get to a point where they're, they can call their career a writer. So when was it for you that you decided this is what you wanted to do for a living? It's a long story. And so, which I think is appropriate because it's weird and hard to be a career writer. Um, so I, uh, uh, I was born in California, but like I mentioned, we, but then we moved to Singapore when I was six and then we moved to India when I was nine. So we were living in different places and I mostly grew up in India. I went to college in India and I, when I, when I went to college in India, I threw myself into theater because that was the thing I loved, but I was doing a degree in history and I had no plans, no intention of making a career in theater. Theater was just what I loved. And so after I finished my degree in history, I did a master's program in global media and communication, where the first year was in London and the second year 
was in Los Angeles at USC. And this kind of was the plan of like, I will, you know, I will get my education and then I will work a day job and then I will continue writing and doing theater if I can. So while I was at USC, I, I just wound up missing theater intensely. And I talked my way into an MFA level playwriting class at the USC School of Theater. And I loved it and I had the best time and it was the only thing I wanted to be doing. So at the end of the semester, I, I actually asked my professors like, what am, I, what, am I, what am I doing? What am I supposed to do? And she was like, well, have you considered applying for an MFA? And I'm just finishing up a master's degree. So I was like, no, I'm not considering an MFA. But I, I took a year and I thought about it. I worked in marketing and, and PR. I, I kept going to see theater. I kept writing. I kept taking master classes. Um, I took master classes at USC. I took a UCLA extension class in playwriting. I was just like, this was what I wanted to do. And so finally, I just thought, let's, you know, let's just apply for the MFA at USC and see what happens. So I applied, I got in, and USC has, at the time, I hope they still do a very, very generous financial aid package. Um, so, and I could continue working part-time. So taking all of that into consideration, I thought, let's just go for it. I'm young enough that if this is a mistake, it, it won't hopefully ruin the rest of my life. Like, let's just, if it's a mistake, let's get it out of the way early. So um, I, I loved the MFA. I had the best time, it, it, small classes. Um, I went with uh, two, my class was me and two other women and they're still dear, very close friends of mine um, and writers that I respect tremendously. The faculty at USC was mostly playwrights of color, which again was very important to me. Um, and when I graduated from the MFA, I had two productions in hand. I had won two major competitions. I had won, I had won a major competition, placed second in another one, which gave me two productions in hand, which gave me an agent. And so I started working in theater. And I worked in theater for a long time. Um, and the entire time, like I worked in theater for about five or six years. And the entire time I still had day jobs. I still had freelance gigs. I still had other things I was doing to make rent. Um, and then in 2018 was when I got my first TV job. It was only after I started working in TV and film that now I can call myself a professional writer because uh, theater doesn't pay. Yeah, It's what I love, but it doesn't pay. Um, but theater was the springboard that helped me get into TV and film, which I also really love and can actually give me health insurance. So that's Always important. Yeah. Um, so I do want to talk a bit about your plays first. I mean, when you look at your resume of plays, you've had so many produced across so many theaters, across so many states, and you've been a fellow as well. How do you, how do you find these opportunities and how do you know which ones to submit to? I, uh, I submitted relentlessly and it's just really important to do. So yeah, anytime there was a competition that I was remotely eligible for, I submitted and I would have spreadsheets and I would follow um, Facebook pages that had like links to everything I had like, I, deadline, deadlines were in my calendar. I used competitions as motivation to like finish drafts of things. Um, so the the big one of the big competitions that I won that kind of I feel like kickstarted my career was the Candida Graduate Playwriting Contest, which is held by the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. 
and it is open to graduating MFA students in playwriting programs across the country. And it's a blind submission and you submit a play. And if you win, you get a professional production at a major theater in Atlanta. Um, and I, so I submitted a play and to my incredible honor and surprise it won. And I got this beautiful, incredible production. And there was another um, playwriting contest by East West Players in LA, which is an Asian American theater company. And they were specifically looking for Asian American playwrights. They, uh, they have this uh, playwriting contest that they hold um, where any Asian American playwright is welcome to submit a script. And I submitted another script of mine that was uh, about an Indian American family and it won second place. And in that particular competition, all first, second and third prize winners all get productions, which is really amazing. So I got to have another production that way. So both of my first big opportunities to work in the theater happened because I submitted to contests. Um, and in 2016, I got, I got into the Juilliard Playwriting Fellowship, which is a, an incredible playwriting fellowship. It's free, it's in New York City. So you, the only thing that is required of you is to live in New York City and be able to make the meetings. Um, but I submit, I, I applied for that every year. I think a lot of playwrights do. A lot of playwrights apply for the Juilliard program every year because you don't, you know, aside from the application fee, you don't lose that much. But if you don't get it, you just continue on with your life. Um, but yeah, I applied multiple, multiple times before I got in, which is the story I think with a lot of people. Um, and I mean, the, the Dramatist Guild, which is uh, the, the kind of professional organization for playwrights publishes a guidebook every year with all of the playwriting contests you can imagine that you, you might be able to submit for. It's a lot of work, it's not fun. Um, it's also sometimes can feel a bit scammy. Um, you gotta be careful not to like pay too many you know, pay too much in terms of like competition fees and things like that. You gotta make sure that whatever you're sub submitting to is legit, but there are a lot of legit opportunities out there. And um, that's, that's kind of how I got a lot of chances to get my work out there is just submitting to breeding festivals and fellowships and all of that. So, yeah. Okay. So it goes without saying that when you submit that much, you're also gonna face a hefty share of rejection. So how, how did you handle rejection? Did you just keep pushing through? I kept pushing through. It was one of those, and I feel like playwrights joke about, I feel like all writers joke about this, but like you submit to something and then you forget about it and you move on. And then six months later, you get a letter that's like, we don't like you. <laughs> and it's like, I was having a perfectly fine day. I didn't need to know that you rejected me. Like I, maybe some people want to know that, that they got rejected, but you know, I think like, like with other, you know, writing industries, like, Many times I would get a rejection letter with a handwritten note, like we really loved your play, like wasn't for this year, wasn't for this particular moment, but please, you know, keep keep us in mind, which is which is always nice. Um, rejections stings, you know, and it's it's just one of those things where like it it stings until you allow yourself to slowly get drawn back into the project you're working on right now that you're hopefully really in love with, and then like that feeling of rejection just kind of fades into the background because now you're working on a thing that you love and, but it is, it is hard. Um, yeah. So I want to, I want to switch gears and talk about some of your specific projects. Now I want to start with evil eye, cause this is one that's traveled. It started in one medium and has since been adapted to another medium. But I want to start when you first conceived this idea for evil eye, did you intend, like, did you specifically write it for an audio play medium or was that just kind of the opportunity you saw? Yeah, and this one uh, was a commission. So this one, Audible approached me um, 
along with several, several other playwrights, um, approached us to write plays for their platform. Um, so that was a really cool opportunity to think about radio plays, which are just, you know, um, this like kind of, I was almost about to say ancient art form, but they're not ancient. They're just like older than the others we have right now. Um, and uh, I had, I, uh, the, the BBC has a radio play contest, by the way. Uh, and that was one of the things that I would try and submit to every year. So I, I'd kind of been dabbling with radio plays, but I hadn't really had a chance to like very seriously sit down and be like, okay, I'm getting paid for this. I, this is a job. Let me sit down and figure it out. Um, so yeah, and so I, when I got the commission, I thought to myself, well, what can I do in this audio play format that I cannot do as a stage play, that I cannot do as a movie, that I cannot do as a book? Like, what is the thing that I can do that is so um, specific to this format? And so the idea of telephone conversations came to me. Um, this was, a, a, again, a place where like one of the day jobs I was working helped out because I was working at the time at a startup that um, was trying to figure out how to uh, record and upload two-way phone calls like for, for podcasts and things like that. So we were working on a software and, I, and so we were recording a lot of phone calls and I was like, this is, this is interesting content, like all of these phone calls that we're recording. So what if I made a play that is nothing but phone calls and that would be perfectly suited for an audio play medium where you're just hearing two people talk and that's all you need to know. You're just hearing two sides of a, of a telephone conversation. So that was that was where one of, that was where the idea came from. So yes, so the very first version of display was written specifically for that that format. I love that. I love how that one of your sort of side jobs at the time contributed to it because that's something that a lot of writers have to learn to do is how to harness their day to day life into their creativity. So that it's cool to hear how that works out. Um, and then this this play became it's it's a now it's streaming on Amazon. It's it's a full length feature film. How did you go about adapting that? Was that because it's awesome that, uh, you know, you got approached to write this play. Did you get approached to adapt it to, or was that your idea? I got approached to adapt it to. It was um, the, uh, my uh, uh, TV and film manager saw a lot of potential in the script and the play that I was writing, play version of audio of um, Evil Eye. And so he kind of sent it around and multiple production companies got interested. So Blumhouse was interested, Amazon was interested, and then Priyanka Chopra's production company, Purple Pebble Pictures was, was interested. And so um, really like it was thanks to his like pretty aggressive efforts to make this happen that all everything kind of fell into place at the right time. And Blumhouse kind of needed, um, Blumhouse saw an evil eye like a, a really like really good potential, a really, you know, a, a really good potential Blumhouse movie that could then be released on Amazon Prime in, in you know, like it, with a few other like low budget indie movies that they were making. So, and, uh, and, and I got to write the script <laughs> and I didn't have, I didn't have time to get psyched out or, or, or freaked out about it um, because I, had to start writing it in July and they, because they were filming it in November. So like everything was already set up. Um, and I just got to like jump in at the right time to kind of feed the machine of movie and, and, and TV content that we're all consuming right now. And it was a really, really cool experience. I mean, 
uh, it was re- it was really hard and really tricky to kind of translate uh, the story that I had conceived of in a very specific way for another medium. So, but it was also really fun because then I I got to do things with the story that I just couldn't do. I just actually could not do because of the limitations I had set upon myself. So, I got to use this opportunity to spend more time with characters that I did not get to spend as much time with in the audio version of this play or to see things that we couldn't literally visually see um, when you're just listening to it. So I don't know. I'm just really thrilled that there are two different versions of the story out there. So people can, you know, choose whatever they want to, whatever they feel like. Yeah. And, you know, there, there were some big stars attached to it as well. What, what was it like seeing it on the screen for the first time? I mean, there has to be a thrill, right? It was pretty cool. It was really, really cool. Um, it was extremely surreal. I mean, I have seen my plays produced, you know, multiple times. That's always really, really thrilling. But there's something about um, writing a screenplay and having such a very specific vision. Like, cause, Because when you're writing a play, you're writing the dialogue, but you're leaving so much stuff kind of open to interpretation. That's kind of the, the unspoken practice of making theater especially American theaters, that the dialogue is sacrosanct, but the set is fluid, the ways in which actors can interpret lines. Like it, a play has to travel from production to production, right? So it's, it's kind of a more open-ended thing. But, but with the screenplay, I'm, I'm literally writing down every single thing that they can see, because we only have one chance to get this right. So it was really surreal to watch the movie and literally feel like my brain had been CT scanned and was just right there. Um, and like, the characters looked like the characters in my head, the sets looked like the the places in my head, the moments were just, and the way the characters said things, it was really surreal. It was incredibly cool. Mm-hmm. So I want to shift gears a bit and talk about now your, your writing on TV shows, specifically uh, HBO's The Nevers. Now, how did you find, how did this opportunity come to you? And, and how was this different? We'll, we'll start with how, it, how you found this opportunity or how it came to you. So... I mean, a lot of the work that I've been getting recently really happened because I have very good representation in TV and film and theater. Um, so uh, the nevers happened because my agent sent my play House of Joy to HBO and House of Joy is a period action adventure romance with sword fighting women. And the nevers is a period action adventure romance with like martial arts women with superpowers. And so, um, HBO then passed it on to Joss Whedon who read the play and liked it. And then I got to interview for the show and got the job. And it was really that simple and that fast and that insane. And I got the call and then I had to move to LA a week later. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of how that happened. So what's the process? How was how the process different? Cause when you're writing for a TV show, obviously you're in a room of people. It's not just you, it, it's a, it's a host of people. How did that differ from writing your own scripts? And do you have a preference one over the other? I don't really have a preference. I like that I'm able to work in all, um, all three. I'm able to work in features and TV and theater. I really feel very lucky that I can do that. TV is, um, I mean, I think every TV room is run differently. The point of it, the entire point of a writer's room is to support the show creator and the showrunner. Sometimes they're the same person, sometimes they're a team, is to support support the people in charge in making the TV show that they want to make. So it is an extremely collaborative process, all focused on serving the needs of the creator. So it is a very specific skill. 
and it requires a tremendous amount of like social regulation, which I think can be tricky. Um, and it's definitely a learning curve because you want to do your best and you want to contribute and you want to help make it the best show possible, but you also got to make sure that it is what the creator wants. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole skill set of like trying to understand their voice and trying to understand what excites them, what they want to do with the story and then keep pitching and feeding ideas that hopefully help them figure out what they want to do. And then, um, so that's usually like the discussion around a writer's in a writer's room um, about big story ideas. That's usually how the discussion goes is like, how do we figure out what story we're going to tell? And then usually writers get assigned scripts and then you get maybe like a week or two weeks to write a script. Um, Everything would have been outlined already in the writer's room collectively would have outlined the whole episode together. And then you go off and you write the script and then you come back and then it's like several rounds of notes. So you got to learn how to, roll with the punches, take notes sometimes in public with other writers, which can also be very tricky and sometimes painful, Um, you know, and just do several drafts and kind of subsume your ego really, because this process is not about you. So there's a lot of stuff that's like tricky and difficult about it. But the thing I really love about it is I hate writing by myself. I actually find it very painful to be by myself and writing. I, when I'm stuck on an idea in a script, like I, 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 I can't figure it out on my own. It, it feels like torture. I have to call somebody, I have to call a friend, I have to talk to my husband, Seamus, and, and, and get their feedback on like what I'm missing or like what we can do. So that's what I do with my own stuff. And with the TV room, like that's what we're supposed to do, which I find a huge relief. So that's my favorite part of writing for TV is um, the, the, rel- the shared stakes we have. It doesn't, it's not all on one person. And uh, I like that a lot. Was it, I mean, you kind of answered this a little bit, but the whole adapting your writing style, your writing voice to fit the TV show, I feel like so many writers struggle to find their voice. Was it difficult to adapt yourself to fit into that, the mold of the TV show? What was the learning curve like? You know, with The Nevers, which was my first show, uh, it was relatively easy because I'd grown up on Joss Whedon's work and because his voice had already influenced my writing style so much. And so it was just like, very fortuitous that that was my first job. And I feel like I was able to like fully understand his voice because his voice again is so distinct and because he's done so many TV shows and I know them so intimately that I was able to figure that out, I think fairly well in the room. So that was really great. And then, um, but then sometimes it's kind of like uh, the second show that I'm been on, uh, which is um, Three Body Problem for Netflix, like that's a a very different style, writing style with three different showrunners. And so that also was a bit of a learning curve in like figuring out, well, this is a new genre, it's sci-fi, it's epic, but it's also intimate and personal and we're trying to figure out the characters together. So I think with that, it was just a matter of like taking multiple stabs at drafts and getting closer and closer and figuring out with each draft, like what's the best version of this episode? Like what's the best version of this character? And it's it's just, it, that's just, I feel like with really good showrunners who are nurturing and patient with younger writers, especially, I feel like you can do that just by being open and giving it your best and trying really hard and working hard and taking feedback. You know, it, it's going to be a bit of an awkward process, but it's trial and error. And, you know, hopefully everybody's on the same page. We're all just trying to make a good TV show. Mm-hmm. 
And I want to backtrack a little bit because, you know, you, you brought up this whole having an agent that's found you great opportunities. So I want to go back to how you found that representation in the first place, because it sounds like such a big staging point for writers that want to follow in this kind of career path. How did you find your agent? Well, that happened because of my, the competition I won mm-hmm. um, and all the way back in 2013. And so I won the Candida Graduate Playwriting Contest. And then when I started working at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, the, um, uh, the dramaturg I was working with recommended me to my agent, uh, Beth Blickers, who happened to represent, I think, two former winners of that same competition. Um, and I had also met with a couple of other agents. She wasn't the only one I had met with. And the other two, I had been introduced to them again through directors that I had worked with or other just kind of theater people who were like, oh, I think you should talk to this agent. And then they would intro- make an introduction. But um, Beth was the one who was clearly like it. Um, and uh, someone actually like emailed me recently to ask like, I'm, I have my my script out in a competition, like literary agents are reaching out to me, what should I look for? Which is a great question. And I think the most important thing to look for when you're talking to an agent is do they genuinely love your work? Do they actually really, really love your writing? Are they passionate about it? Can they speak intelligently about it? Can they understand what you're trying to go for? Have they, are they asking to read more than one sample of your work? That's also very important. Like, do, have, they read, have they read two or three samples of your writing and understood like your range, understood your depth. And do they, do they talk to you in terms of like, what do you want out of your career? What do you hope for? What, how can I support you? Like you have to have somebody who really believes in you as a writer for the long haul, because otherwise it's just gonna be a miserable relationship and it's not gonna be fun. Mm-hmm. So that's how I met Beth is like, I still remember when she emailed me, she was like, long story short, I think you're a terrific writer, can we talk? And I was like, wow, that's so, direct and wonderful and we talked and it was great yeah and so she was my agent I've kind of followed her as she switched agencies my tv and theater represent my tv and film representation kind of came through recommendations from her so I think once you find that one mentor or one ally in your process um they can help open other doors as well and then you know once you have this representation they bring you opportunities is it okay to turn stuff down? Like, have you ever had to do that? And what would, or, or what would make you turn it off or down? Like if your agent came to you with something and you didn't want to do it, is it okay to say no? I say no all the time. I think it's very important to say no. I think it's important to be extremely precious with your mental health, your time. And uh, yeah, well, just be very, I mean, yeah, there, I, I almost never regret the stuff I say no to. Um, And it's never, and it's, and most of the time, most of the time it's because, well, right now it's because of time. But before that, it's been because it's not the right fit. Like, I don't, I'm not genuinely super excited about working with this particular creative partner or maybe pursuing this particular project. Um, I, this is a piece of advice that has served me very well. And I tell many people, uh, David Lindsay Bear once told our playwriting class at Juilliard, don't say yes to anything unless it's an eight on 10 or above. So if you can rank something in excitement, unless it's eight out of 10 or above, don't say yes, because even a 7.5 will be miserable. Um, I think that's important. I think that's so important 
even when you're like building your career, especially when you're building your career, like your time is precious. Your, your energy is precious. Like make sure you're always leaving room in your life for the collaborators you actually want to grow with. You know, if you say yes to something, then you might be, if you say yes to something you're not really excited about, you will be shutting yourself off from time to work on something that you are excited about on your own or collaborators that you might actually fall in love with. Like don't, so yeah, that's, that's, I think that's really important. No, that's great. That's great advice. Um, I, I want to pivot here to another project that you've worked on, which is the web series of Titus Andronicus. I'm always so fascinated to see reinvigorations of Shakespeare because it, these are stories that have been told for centuries. So what was it, what, what, what was the challenge here in adapting this to a modern audience and why this play? Oh my God. I, I'm just realizing I don't remember how we figured out no, I know, I know how we figured out Titus Andronicus. Okay, so um, Titus Andronicus happened because me and my friend Megan, who I Megan Kelly, who I went to grad school with, um, and my now husband Seamus, we were all writers in LA, and we're all playwrights, and we all wanted to get into TV, and TV wasn't happening. So we thought, what if we created a three-person writers' room? And, and see if we could make our own show. Um, and we got the idea for Titus Andronicus because we had just done a, a Hollywood fringe play, like um, one of those you know fringe play festival plays where it's all of us and we're just spending like 20, 20 bucks putting up a play and we're you know papering the entire city trying to get our, our friends to come our, see our show. And we had done this wonderful play that Megan wrote and produced uh, called Much Ado About Something, which was Much Ado, but with aliens. And it was fantastic. It was so great. Um, and we had such a great time working with Megan on that. So then uh, and at some point in like working on Much Ado, Megan had made the joke about Titus Andronicus, where she, where she pretended like she thought Titus Andronicus were two different people called Titus and Dronicus, and we just thought that was so funny, S such, a, such a stupid, nerdy, wonderful joke. And so uh, we kind of came up with, well, what if Titus and Dronicus are Shakespearean detectives? Uh, because we all love murder stuff. Seamus is fantastic at writing noir. Um, and it just felt like a very doable idea for a web series. So yeah, we, we got together, we wrote the first season, which is Hamlet. And we did a Kickstarter, which is one of the most painful experiences of my life, but we did it. We raised the money. Um, we found our director, Liz Rizzo, through a friend, and she came on board and she loved the scripts. And, and yeah, and then we were just kind of off and building a team and actually producing it. And now it's up. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And you, you touched on two things that I want to talk about. First off, I, I, you know, that whole notion of when when the work isn't there, creating opportunities for yourself, I think is something that writers really have to learn to do. It's different though, to create opportunities for yourself and then take them to a point where they can then be produced. Can you speak a little bit to what, what do writers need to do to create these opportunities for themselves and how can they make them serious endeavors that aren't just like time wasters that can turn into something? No, you never know if something's going to be a waste of your time. <laughs> you never know until you try. And then, I mean, to be honest, nothing's ever a waste of your time. Nothing's ever a waste of your time. Like you always learn something or you make a new friend and you find a new collaborator and you're like, even if this didn't work out this time, like I love you and we have to keep working together. So 
it's never a waste of your time. Um, I mean, I think, well, I think in terms of, I think that's, I think that's, I don't know, if, is there another option? Like we have to make our own work. We have to make our own work. You know, it's like, whatever that is, we have to make our own work. We have to find our own audience because it's just something we have to do. That's what, like, that's what we did in fan fiction land. It's like, we, we, we felt compelled to write, so we're writing. And then our work finds a community and we find our community through the work. You know, it kind of goes back and forth. So, I mean, production is incredibly awful. <laughs> I don't want to be a producer. There's a reason I'm a writer. I never want to be a producer ever in my life. It's really, really, really tough. But uh, because I got to work with two of my best friends, um, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> so I think it's about finding the right, if you're doing a, something in a collaborative medium, it's about finding the right collaborator, collaborators that you can trust and you genuinely enjoy working with and you feel like you make them better and they make you better. And, you know, I, I feel like no matter what, that's the most important thing in any artistic journey is like finding mm -hmm. your people. So, mm -hmm. I don't so know. you also brought up Kickstarter. I don't want to spend too much time here because you said you hated it, but I yeah. do want to bring it up because that is such a good resource for people to sort of take that next step from, Hey, we did this to, Hey, let's have other people see it. What yeah. was your experience like with Kickstarter? And what made you use that as the medium to sort of take it to the next level? You know, we did this, we did this in 2014 and it was kind of the heyday of like web series and Kickstarter stuff. So like a lot of people were doing it. So there was a lot, of, and I was also like, my day job was in marketing. So there was like, I had knowledge of like what worked and how to, how to do stuff like that. Um, the thing that was most surprising about Kickstarter was how much support we got from people who were just like at the very fringe of our acquaintances. And I think, I think these are called like secondary connections. There's like an actual word for it. It's like, oftentimes, like when you're looking for a job, it's not like your closest family or friends who will actually help get you a job. It's actually people on the very fringes of your network or like a friend of a friend who will be like, oh no, no, I got something for you. And it's, it's really interesting with Kickstarters. Like we got so many donations from people that like, I, I didn't know would even be interested. And it was really gratifying and wonderful. And um, just, it, it, I mean, it's also like, the thing about Kickstarter is once you get that money, you can't drop the ball. There's a tremendous amount of pressure, which means you're not going to like give up on this project. You have to follow through. You have to follow through. Like people gave up money for you that they, you know, it, and that's not, they're just regular people. They're like, they just donated in you because they donated because they believe in you. And that's like, incredible encouragement and pressure to keep going. So I think that was also useful, but yeah, it was really hard. It was really emotionally hard to put ourselves out there to like do all the marketing, to do the kind of like hamster wheel of like promotion and, um, and then kind of satisfying everything that we promised on the back end. And I think some people are very good at that. And I, I just am not comfortable with that, but we got through it. So, yeah. and I'm glad we did it. So I want to talk a bit about uh, this, the whole MFA question, because this is something that writers eternally debate against, if they should do an MFA, if not. Now, your your journey was a little bit unique because you it sounds like you kind of just, you were there and I was like, oh, this seems like a good idea. Now, what where do you fall on the whole MFA versus non-MFA debate? Like, is this something that writers should consider, that all writers should do, that no writers should do? How do you feel about MFAs? I feel deeply conflicted about it. 
I feel deeply, deeply conflicted about it because I benefited so much from an MFA, but I think it's a profoundly unfair system. And so I don't want to endorse it. Um, this particular MFA at USC, I found very gratifying for a few reasons. One was they gave me a 75% tuition remission and a teaching fellowship. So I could afford to do it, which is very important. Um, there are a lot of MFAs that don't give you that. And I'm very, very suspect of MFA programs like that. The other reason is we had four playwriting professors. Three of them are writers of color. Two of them were women. That was very important to me. Most MFA programs in this country are incredibly white, incredibly male, incredibly uh, normative in many ways, um, ableist, like just a whole mess of problems. So, and I personally had a good experience uh, at USC. And, but again, like my experience is not at all universal. Like it, an MFA can be very emotionally painful and traumatic if you just wind up in a classroom situation where you don't gel with people or if you wind up with professors that you can, don't click with and then suddenly you're spending so much money and you're giving up prime earning years of your life where you could be working in another industry or another job to pursue this thing where there's like a, such a fleeting chance of success in, if you define success in a, in a very particular way. So I can't endorse in the face. But the thing that kickstarted my career was a competition that is only open to MFA graduates. I, I, and I don't fault that competition. I love the Alliance Theater and I love that they have this to begin with. Like, one of the, thank God they have this. But I think personally, like in the American theater, like I don't think there's anything stopping uh, these major like multi-million dollar theaters across the country from having an open submission competition every year where they're like, anybody can submit a play and the winning play gets a production. Like I don't, like one slot per season. I don't see why they can't do that. You know, if if the system changed and made it more equitable, we would not have to think about MFAs. I don't think MFAs are a solution. I think they're a problem and they're perpetuating an unfair system. So I can't endorse them, but there are, specific situations in which it might work out. Like, again, like I got to spend a whole year hanging around the USC theater department before I was like, I really like these people, I wanna apply. Most of the time you don't, you don't get that option, you know? So, so yeah. basic advice for MFA is just do your research and be cautious and, and, and know what you're getting into. Know what you're getting into, really think about the financials. Don't go into debt. Like, it's just not worth it. Um, I think there are so many other ways to grow as a writer. And I think that if you're talented and if you work hard, it's not a meritocracy, but you will find your tribe either way. I think so. Um, but yeah, it's really tricky. It's hard. So I want to get to a couple of audience questions before we get back to some of mine. Uh, first question is just, have you ever submitted to, you mentioned BBC earlier, they do a radio play. Have you ever submitted to that? I'm pretty sure I submitted a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have feelings about it one way or another? No, I think I got rejected both times. So it's like, like any other competition, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Uh, second question. Uh, they're complimenting the fringe, which to say is a great outlet. Would you recommend fringe as a good way to get started to sort of kickstart your writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like if you're a playwright, then yeah, you've got to self-produce your work at some point it's how everybody gets started mm -hmm. so yeah i think i think a fringe festival is, is a great way to just throw yourself into the deep end yeah. mm -hmm. 
And if anybody else has questions, get them in there. Otherwise, I'll go all day with questions. So I want to get back to some more general questions here about your your career as a writer. Uh, What were some of the obstacles that, you know, as writers, we always face like pivoting points where we have to really reckon with what we're doing. What were some of the biggest obstacles you had to face throughout your career? Man, I don't know how to answer this question because I feel like I've been very privileged. And I, I think a lot of the stuff that our actual obstacles were cushioned by the fact that I could rely on my parents as a financial safety net if everything went to shit. Like if everything really blew up in my face, I knew that I would have like somebody to like catch me when I fell. So, you know, it's been like, I don't know, like I'm just starting to build up my savings account since I started working in TV and film. My entire twenties was like, living month to month on like freelance stuff and theater stuff. Um, So I feel like there's stuff I missed out on, but I don't think that's any different from like what most of the millennial and Gen Z generations are going through right now under the system we live in. You know, it's not that different. Um, I feel like the, actually the biggest obstacle wasn't, has never been anything like one particular moment or super dramatic. It has just been my mental health. And what happened, one of the great things that Julia gave me was free therapy. Mm-hmm. So one of the incredible things about the Juilliard Fellowship is that if you get in, then you kind of get, are granted full access to this Juilliard school of school and all the facilities that they have there. Even though as a playwright, you're only in the building maybe like once or twice a week, you're not really a full-time student there like the actors are or musicians are. You get access to the building and you get access to the library and you get access to their health services, which includes free therapy. So I was in a really bad place uh, with my anxiety when I started Juilliard and I kind of kept calling and calling their health services. And I finally was able to get into a slot that they had open for therapy. And that's how I met my therapist who I still have right now. So it was two years of free therapy with her and she just kind of helped me really reorient the way I thought about my writing and my life. I felt a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt in a way of being like the child of immigrant parents who was now like at Juilliard and really struggling and failing at her day jobs and feeling just like a piece of shit for (laughs) wanting to do, wanting to just be a full-time writer. I wanted to be that, but I couldn't give myself permission to like take the leap and just be like, what if I don't work a day job for a year or two? What if I just do this while I'm at Juilliard? And it, that guilt of even considering that was eating me up. And it was, so it was just like a lot of, I was having a lot of anxiety and a lot of like baggage and a lot of fear, a tremendous amount of fear about kind of taking the plunge and, and treating this as, as a profession in a career. Um, and also feeling guilty for, for, for the privileges that I had. Um, and, and guilt is not necessarily a productive or helpful feeling. Um, uh, so it's kind of, so therapy really helped me be reoriented and that's kind of been my ongoing obstacle. Mm-hmm. It's just my mental health and like trying to kind of stay afloat and stay focused and stay productive, but also kind of honor rest and, honor like my sense of self and honor my community and my loved ones. Mm-hmm. So yeah, therapy has been, I wish everyone had access to it really. Yeah, no, definitely. 
another question here from the audience. Different writers have different skill sets, such as dialogue. What are yours and how did you develop them? I think mine is dialogue too. And I think that's how I figured out I wanted to be a playwright is because when I was writing all of that Harry Potter fan fiction, I realized that the only thing I was interested in writing was the dialogue and I did not want to write anything else. Like I didn't want to write the prose. Found prose incredibly boring. I just wanted to say what the characters were saying and that was most interesting to me. And I wanted to let the readers kind of fill in the gaps of like what was happening around the dialogue. And then as, as I was doing that, I, I realized as I started reading plays, I was like, wait, that's a play. <laughs> Plays are just that. They're mostly dialogue. And then the director and the actors and all the collaborators come in to fill the world around the dialogue, but the dialogue becomes the architecture of everything. And therefore, you can never tell us what a character is feeling. You can only show us what a character is feeling because you only have dialogue as your, as your tool. So yeah, I, I knew from a very early like point in my writing journey that dialogue was the thing that I loved. Um, and so, yeah, and, and so that's where I started with And Now I feel like what I am good at is not that I'm necessarily good at it, but I feel like I'm good at recognizing that whenever there's a problem in the story, it comes back to character. And it sounds very, very obvious, but I think it's, it's not actually a, 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 a way of looking at story that a lot of writers have. And I think that's what I'm good at is if there's a problem, it's because your, your character's missing something and you got to go back to that and, and look at it uh do you ever we you know we, we talk about writer's block very often on this show so i want to get your take on it do you ever have writer's block especially when you're on deadlines how does that change the way you can handle writer's block if, if you, you don't have time to be blocked so what do you do i constantly have writer's block and it's not a in a sense of like um uh i don't have any ideas like I, I rarely have writer's block in the sense of like, oh, it's been a month since I've written something and I don't have any ideas. That I don't think has happened to me, but I constantly have writer's block in which I am terrified to just start writing. Um, I'm on deadline and I know that I have to start writing a thing and I know that there's a problem in the story that I need to fix. And I am so terrified to start writing and it is really hard. And I, don't, and I it's honestly very miserable each time to push through that and get to a point where I can start writing. Because of course, every time when I start writing, it's not that painful and it's fine. But hours, hours a day that I am just um, really, really scared. And it's hard to explain that to anyone who's not a writer. It's like, why are you scared? What, what are you, there's not a bear in the room. Like, what are you scared about? That is truly terrifying to be alone with your thoughts. Um, and so, yeah. Um, I don't have any answers for that because I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. But there is something that I've learned in terms of like writer's block, in terms of like trying to solve a story problem is that 99 times out of 100, if there's a story problem, it's because at some point in your story, your main character or another important character has acted in a way that is not consistent with who they are. And instead you made them act a certain way in order to fulfill a plot idea that you had in your head or a vision that you, you know, you had a moment that you wanted to get to. And therefore you force fitted like this character to get to that moment. And then you will get to that moment or you can't even get to that moment because like you're stuck. So 99 times out of hundred, it's because you have to go back and then you have to like let go of what your plans were. And you have to look at the character and you have to sit with the character and be like, well, what would this character actually do? Or you have to be like, no, actually that plot point is the entire reason the story exists. 
then you have to like slowly go back and imagine a different character who will help you get to that point. And that I feel like is the one technique for writer's block that has worked for me over and over again. Another question here from the audience. Uh, what movies, scripts, TV shows, or books do you revisit often to inform your own work or leverages inspiration or uses good examples? Oh man, I don't, I don't think I revisit stuff that much, honestly. I feel like I find inspiration constantly from whatever I'm watching and reading right now. And um, my husband's a writer as well. He's with the Gotham Writers Workshop. And our favorite thing to do is to watch things and then talk about why they worked or why they didn't work. So I actually don't have any recommendations for stuff I keep going back to. Um, there, you know, there are styles, there are types of movies that I have a, a tremendous amount of admiration for. Um, like for instance, I really love well-made movies where everything is beautifully balanced and like every, every plant has a payoff. It's just like super elegantly done. Um, like Knives Out is a recent example of a well-made movie that I really admire. Um, but I'm not always trying to write a well-made movie. So I just, I, I can see something and really appreciate it and talk about why it worked and figure out like, well, what made the writer or director make those choices? I feel like that's really interesting. So I don't know. I watched Megadoon with Seamus last night and it was just really cool. And it was really fun to, and then we had a really cool conversation about one of the characters where he was kind of like, I don't understand how we're supposed to have any empathy for that character. And then I was like, oh no, no, see this, they did this and then they did that and they had that line. And then they cast this actor in that part. So that's telling us something. It's just really fun to unpack stuff like that. So, yeah. Next question. Can you speak to the future of plays and live theater given the pandemic and the growing clarity that this will be a longer term development than when we first realized, especially the impact on smaller productions, given the smaller number of people who will be willing to attend live? I mean, it's a really heartbreaking subject um, because I don't really care about the future of theater, I really care about the welfare of arts workers right now. I don't give a shit how soon we can come back and see plays. I really give a shit about the safety of audiences and about the economic welfare of arts workers. And it infuriates me that the American theater has not taken care of its own. Um, there's a great um, article in American Theater Magazine uh, that's called um, Theater is Back, but who's, who's, but who's Back or something like that, where it kind of outlines like when the shutdowns happened, uh, freelance artists were left completely on their own. Many freelance artists who were under contract for ongoing shows were suddenly like let go from their contracts and not, they were not paid for their full contracts because the show got shut down, which is unconscionable. Um, and then slowly lower level staffers, lower level administrators at all of these different theater companies started getting furloughed, laid off, fired. Um, and, uh, and all of the recovery efforts were actually put into saving the real estate, which is the theater buildings. So I actually, I don't know, it's a difficult answer. It's, it's, it's a difficult question to answer because I don't really care about that stuff. Um, I have like three plays that are supposed to be going up in 2022. And if they all got shut down, I honestly wouldn't be surprised. The only thing I care about is that the um, artists who have signed on to do those shows are financially compensated for 
their work and their time. We do a really bad job of taking care of artists in this country. So that's just part of the whole thing. I, I was looking for the reactions to add a little applause whenever you started talking there, <laughs> but I couldn't find it, but I was applauding you in my head. Yeah. Uh, before we part today, is there any parting advice you would give to writers who want to sort of follow in what you've done to find their way into being either a full-time writer, full-time creative in multiple ways? Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I feel like the system is really stacked unfairly against us and that's not our fault. And it's really hard. Um, I think that knowing the reality of whether or not you can actually make a full-time living in writing is important to know going in. I think um, uh, particularly, for instance, in publishing, I think there has been a lot written lately about actual numbers that authors need to know about how publishing a book isn't a guarantee of anything. It's definitely not a guarantee of a livelihood. Um, and so I feel like actually having a better sense of the economic realities of the field that we're in is very, very important. Um, and then kind of making priorities and making plans around that. Um, talking to the people in your life and asking for support, I think is very important. Um, when I was at Juilliard, I leaned on Seamus, uh, my husband, to be like the breadwinner essentially and and now I'm hoping that I, I get to like offer him some time and space because now I'm able to work. So I'm hoping that I can give him more time and space to write. So that is something that we're able to do for each other. So I think like asking friends and family and your, you know, your chosen people for support is really important and not being afraid to ask for that is really important because the system is stacked against us and we have to help each other. Um, and the hope is that as we keep helping each other, maybe slowly the system will start to change. I'm currently, you know, like I'm in the screenwriting business right now. And so the thing that I'm trying to get really involved in is union um, politics and like union awareness, because we have the Writers Guild, which is a, which is an actual professional union that lobbies for our minimums, that like negotiates for our rights, that protects us. And it's very important to be like actively involved in the union because I want to have a long-term career in this. And the union is the only thing that protects us and gives us even a hope of having a long-term career as professional writers. So I don't know. I think that's, that's what I would advise and, and think about. And I feel like whenever we see unsustainable or unequitable practices or assumptions being set up in our industries, we have to speak up about it. If there is um, an opportunity that is being offered, but it, re it requires a certain level of, for instance, accessibility, and they're not providing accessibility for disabled writers, I feel like that's something we need to speak up about. If it's something that assumes that you don't have a family or if you don't have children or you're not caretaking, or you're not caregiving for anyone, we have to speak up about that and be like, why aren't you making accommodations for that? We actually have to change the system slowly, one bit at a time in order to give all of us a hope at having a career as writers. So it's just a big problem. It's, I mean, be, being a career writer is a big, big problem. Um, but at the end of the day, like, like we're all writers for a reason. Like there's no better feeling in the world than having written something. It's the, the, the rush is just insane. And I think that's why we keep doing it. So let's just keep finding joy in that because that cannot be taken away from us. Like the joy 
of finding characters that we actually want to spend time with and finishing a story. <laughs> Writing is not fun, but finishing is so fun. Let's just keep holding on to that and uh, being good to each other. Yeah. I like that. Some fantastic insights there. So that brings us to the end of the show today. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for being here. We're going to be back next week uh, talking to two literary agents and publishing lawyers, talking about publishing law. Um, but Majiri, thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciate it. So nice to be here, Josh. Thank you. You're welcome. And all of our listeners, will be. Uh, this will be uploaded uh, to YouTube and to all major podcasting platforms, hopefully by the end of the week. But keep an eye on that. And we will see you next time.